The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Lara Prendergast. And today we're delighted to be joined by Michelle Rougenier. Michelle is an English-French chef and is the chef patron of Le Gavroche, the first UK restaurant to be awarded one, two and then three Michelin stars. Earlier this year, it was announced that Le Gavroche will close from January to give a better work-life balance. And we are delighted to have Michelle with us today. Welcome to Table Talk. Hello there. Great to be with you today. Michelle, we always start at the same place with our guests by asking, what are your earliest memories of food? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Earliest memories of food. And they are so important. Very, very important and, uh, and sometimes can be quite poignant. My first memory of food uh, would be, I, I guess I was around six years old, maybe even less, actually, five, five or six years old. And my father was working as a, a private chef in um, a private household. He was working as the chef for the Cazalet family, who were horse trainers to the Queen Mum. Uh, and this was in a beautiful estate called Fairlawn in, in Kent. And I, um, well, my, my parents didn't have much money and, and certainly couldn't afford a nanny or, a, or childcare. So I was always in a kitchen, very often in the cot or in a playpen in the kitchen when mum and dad were cooking for the family. Um, and I distinctly remember my father making a creme anglaise, so a custard cream, vanilla-flavoured custard cream, and churning it by hand to make ice cream. And churning it by hand, I mean it was a, an iron cylinder uh, with wooden paddles, crankshaft, and this was inserted into a wooden pail with crushed ice and salt to make the temperature go down even further. And you had to turn the handle to churn the ice cream all by hand. And I remember... remember helping dad. And for me, in my mind, as a child, as an infant, I was making that ice cream and churning and churning and churning. And I remember actually the, the ache in the arm and, and being very impatient and saying, dad, when's it ready? When's it ready? And when it was finally ready and churned and, and had become to this, this lovely, creamy, unctuous uh, vanilla ice cream, I remember him taking it off and it was just slipping off the paddles and he got a spoon and gave me a, a spoonful of this vanilla ice cream. And it was just heavenly uh, and to this day vanilla ice cream is my favorite flavor you, you just cannot beat it and for me those those days as a child an infant growing up already in a in a professional kitchen was quite something to, to all the sounds and the smells of a professional kitchen were already sort of permeating my skin and were in me <laughs> and what were meal times like oh well so meal times were fabulous because my mother's a fantastic cook and uh, always used to cook um, you know fresh ingredients uh, and very often they were they were grown in the garden and, and even maybe reared. Uh, my father used to rear pigeons and rabbits for the table. So it was very, very simple, good French fare. But in the evenings, when mum and dad were working, uh, cooking for the family, the local headmistress of the primary school would sometimes look after me. And she was a wonderful lady called Etty. I remember this, and when you think it's going back a long, long way. <laughs> wonderful Welsh lady called Etty. And she used to make the most amazing puddings. 
So there'd be steam puddings, treacle puddings, spotted dick, uh, crumbles, and with custard. But this time, English custard. So packet, <laughs> birds custard. <laughs> and, and I remember it with great fondness as well. So didn't your experience with the kind of churned ice cream didn't negate your joy of the English custard either? No, I mean, it's, it's the polar opposite, isn't it? I mean, it's handmade, you know, lovingly made French-style crème anglaise to instant birds custard. <laughs> both of which I still love today. And what about school food? Do you have happy memories or dismal memories Mm, of it? Not very happy memories. As I mentioned, I was brought up in a French household, even though we were in Kent. So French food and and fresh ingredients, you know, lovingly cooked. Uh, My memories of school dinners, as it were, was grisly mince and really, really not nice food. Some of it fried, overboiled vegetables and, yeah, not good. To, what, to, to the extent that one of my schools, we had the option of bringing in a tuck, you know, tuck box or, a, you know, a, a lunchbox, I should say, rather than having the, uh, the food provided by the school, which we opted for. I say we, my mother and father were, were outraged at the, the quality of the food that I was getting at the school. So I said, take this, you can have a packed lunch every day. All the kids that had packed lunches would go into one classroom and they would all, you know, all the kids, my friends would open up their packed lunch boxes and, and they would have sandwiches with sandwich spread, marmite, peanut butter uh, and a packet of crisps. And the sandwiches were made with that, you know, sort of home pride or, you know, I can't even remember the names of them. That, that horrible, I call it horrible, cotton wool style bread. Whereas in my lunch box, now, as soon as I opened it, I had no more friends. They would just scarper because... I had a smelly cheese in there. I had proper real camembert and things like that <laughs> and brie and garlic sausage and, you know, all of, you know, really, you know, pâtés and some proper bread. And then there was always a fresh fruit. And uh, so, you know, I suppose that that was the difference between a French upbringing as a child uh, to, to sort of the English way and eating. And were your family cooking any kind of English dishes or was it mainly French dishes that you were having at home when you when you were at home? Yeah, at home was mainly French French cooking. So, you know, the, the Blanquette de Vaux and uh, Navarre d'Agneau and, uh, and a lot of offal. We ate a lot of offal. I was brought up on offal. It's a veal tongue. I used to squabble with my sister as well about who would have the best bit of the veal tongue and, uh, and things like that. So, and, and veal brains and oh, yum, making me hungry just talking about it. <laughs> And after school, you then started an apprenticeship in Paris. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what your experience of food was at that stage in life? Yeah, I, I left school at 16. I didn't want to go into further education. I, I just wanted to get to work, basically, and, and learn a craft and, and a skill, namely being a chef. And so my father and uncle recommended that I start in a pastry shop and do a pastry apprenticeship. And that was truly sensational. You know, hard work, yes, obviously, but it was a fantastic learning experience being an apprentice and having such a fabulous mentor. My first head chef was just wonderful. He led by example. He was the first one in and the last one out and really commanded huge respect from everybody that worked there because he led by example. And you you then did military service in Mm. the kitchen at the Elysee. What was that like? Yeah, yeah, my my military service because uh, I got to military service age, which was uh, from the age of 18. So I got called up and I'd just finished my apprenticeship and I wanted to go and work elsewhere in France to carry on learning. So I said to my parents, look, 
I don't want to do my military service. I, I will relinquish my French passport, my French nationality, and just carry on working. And uh, they said, oh, it would be such a shame, you know, you, to, to lose your, your French heritage and your French passport. You never know, it may come in handy. <laughs> it may come in handy. Yes, it's certainly handy now, that's for sure. So they, uh, they, they persuaded me and, and father said to me, look, I know a few people in high places. Uh, let me see if I can pull a few strings. If I can pull a few strings and get you to not waste 12 months of just being a soldier, but actually cooking, would that be of interest? I said, yeah, of course. If, if I'm not wasting my time, then yes. So he managed to pull a few strings and um, I ended up cooking in the Elysee Palace. So cooking for two presidents, uh, that was Valéry Giscard d'Estaing and uh, President Mitterrand. I did three months of training, which you have to do anyway. So three months of learning how to uh, shoot straight and generally just be a soldier. Yeah. Not very glamorous. That <laughs> no, bit. It sounds very glamorous. But the, but, but the cooking bit was very glamorous. <laughs> and what sort of things were you cooking in that context? What was the food like? Oh, wow. Let me just have a slurp of coffee, which is rather good. So let, let's, <laughs> let's name so check Oscar. That we've... <laughs> Thank you, Oscar. Very nice coffee. Um, he was under pressure. <laughs> The um, yeah, yeah, the Elysee. I mean, I, I saw opulence, huge opulence. The team at the Elysee Palace, the chefs, were very worried at the time of the election. Valéry Giscard d'Estaing was in power. He was a, a gourmet and a gourmand, loved his food and great wines. And Mitterrand won the election, which meant the socialists were coming in. And there, there was an air of panic and disdain in the staff at the Elysee Palace because they thought socialist government coming in, it's going to be sandwiches, beers, poulet frites, as opposed to you know, great opulence. They were completely wrong, absolutely 100% wrong because the socialist government hadn't been in for a, a two terms, I think, so 14 years, and they had a lot of catching up to do. So if anything, it was even <laughs> more opulent. And uh, it was state banquet after state banquet. And uh, it was a wonderful time to be at the Elysee Palace and to see that. Because Mitterrand was equally as gourmet and gourmand, uh, thoroughly enjoyed his food and wanted to showcase the best of France and the best of uh, French ingredients to everybody that he invited. So it was just a wonderful time to be there. And after a few more placements in Paris, you then moved back to the UK and mm. you ended up working with your uncle first and then with your father at Le Gavroche. What was it like working with your, your family at that stage? And, and Le Gavroche, mm. I mean, now it's, it's become such an institution, but did it feel quite revolutionary at that stage? Well, yes, I mean, it was already you know, uh, an institution and, and an iconic name because I came back in the, the sort of mid-80s. Yeah, it was I mean, tough. I mean, I, I, you know, very big shoes to fill and two brothers had built this little mini empire. You know, there was the Le Gavroche, obviously, the Waterside Inn and five other restaurants uh, and businesses in London. Yeah, it was a big responsibility and not easy, not easy to muscle in. And of course... For my father, it, it was very difficult for him to let go as well. It was his baby, after all. So every time I wanted to change little things or put new things on the menu, he was not afraid to voice his opinion. What sort of thing, what sort of thing were you trying to change? What, what would have been the kind of um, differences in opinion on that? Well, to make, to make the whole menu a little bit lighter. My father was renowned for his love of butter and cream. So, I, I, you know, every generation will have... You know, slight changes. I mean, 
for instance, my daughter that has a restaurant in Notting Hill now. She trained in the French classics and loves French classic classical food. However, her style is of her era and she calls me a dinosaur. You know, so it's just evolving. So I wanted to move Le Gavroche into, you know, the next phase of its life. And uh, so, yeah, a little less cream, a little less butter, a lighter touch, uh, different cooking methods and such like, which took a while, a while for him <laughs> to get used to. I mean, the biggest change that I forced through was that the, the first one, when I, I think I'd only been at Gavroche taken over for a couple of years, was to drop the tie rule. So I allowed guests to come in, male guests to come in without the tie. And he was absolutely... Uh, Outre, we say in French. Uh, yeah, he, he was shocked to the point of, of saying, no, you can't do this. This is going to ruin our business. We can't, you know, no, 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 no. The dress code has to remain. I said, no, 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 let's drop the tie rule. And uh, so we dropped the tie rule and uh, it didn't affect business in, in, in any way. If anything, it made people relax a little bit. And then a couple of years after that, I said, you know what? We need to drop the jacket rule as well. And I don't think I've ever seen my father so perplexed and, and, <laughs> and puce with rage. And I said, no, 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 we're, we're definitely going to do this. And it was incredible because as soon as I did that, the average age of the guest at Le Gavroche dropped from 60 plus to 40 plus, which meant we were encouraging a new generation of diners to Le Gavroche, which was exactly what I wanted as well. And, um, you know, people still came in very, very smart and elegant, uh, you know, beautiful dress shirts and trousers and, and looking very, very smart, but without a jacket. And I knew I'd won the argument when finally one day the old man popped in for dinner without a jacket. Le <laughs> <laughs> Gavroche has obviously been wildly successful. What makes a good restaurant? Oh, what makes a good restaurant? Well, I would say it's not just the food. And I say that as a chef. And I do say, you know, very often uh, my advice to young chefs, up and coming chefs is spend less time dressing that beautiful food and making it look fanciful and great. You know, concentrate on the flavour, make sure that the guests are happy and look at your front of house. Look at the experience. People don't go to restaurants just for the food. You know, people go to restaurants for an experience and even more so now. And uh, that experience you have to work on. And, um, you, you know, it, it comes from the right level of service, the atmosphere and the buzz that you create. And I do believe that you create, as in the boss, creates that atmosphere because how you treat your staff and how you welcome your guests filters down and makes your guests happy. And it's a convivial atmosphere and they will then start laughing at the table and the noise level rises and there's that lovely buzz. And you create that through your own style of work and management of, of people. And it's key. I hate going to restaurants where you have to whisper and you're afraid to clunk, you know, your, your cutlery on the plate. These temples of gastronomy are, are an absolute bore and they're not convivial and they're not fun to dine in. And many chefs have earned their stripes at the Gavroche over the years. Are there any kind of looking back that particularly stand out or who you kind of thought they are going mm. to go far? Absolutely. I mean, well, the, the one that immediately springs to mind is um, Gordon Ramsay. I mean, he worked for, uh, at the Gavroche with me for, I think it was three years in total. And then we moved him on with a restaurant in France that we had and then in the States. So, you know, all in all, I think he worked about six years for the Rue family. But he is 
an exceptionally naturally gifted chef. And, you know, there is no doubt. He's a bit Marmite. Some people love him, some people hate him. He is a bit gobby and always has been and probably always will be. But there's no denying of his proper, proper talent. And what is that talent? Is it his flavours or what? Everything. I mean, he has an extraordinary palate. He has an extraordinary eye and just natural talent in a kitchen of whether he's filleting fish or cooking. He's just a very, very gifted chef, which is wonderful. And I, and I saw that from, from day one, which is great. So, But there, are, there have been so many that have come through the kitchens of Le Gavroche and front of house, let's not forget it, and have learned their trade and, and gone on to great things, some of which have become household names like Gordon Ramsay, like Monica Galetti, like Marcus Waring, and, and so on and so forth. But there are, for those three, four that I've mentioned, there are many hundreds more that have gone on to do great things, but have not gone the media route or or are relatively under the radar. And tell us about how you manage back of house. Has the has the way you run a brigade or run a kitchen changed during the course of your career? Or are you still doing it exactly the same as when you started? Yeah, I, I think we've thankfully in the hospitality in, industry evolved and got better at man management. You know, the, the the dark days or the dark ages where it was shouting and and almost military kind of uh discipline are behind us. And like I quite often say, is it's not because I worked 90, you know, 100 hours a week, and I probably still do some weeks, that the next generation have to do the same. So, you know, if we want to survive in our industry, in the hospitality industry, we have to address that. And for the most part, most restaurants have. But there are still a few dinosaurs, as I call them, who, you know, rule their kitchens through terror, and that, that's just not right. And as Livy mentioned, Le Gavroche is due to be closing its doors. Can you mm. take us through the decision-making behind that and, and also how you feel about it? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so um, January 13th is our last uh, service to paying guests. Yeah, very, very mixed emotions. Uh, there, there are moments uh, where I pinch myself and I go, wow, only, you know, only a week to go or two weeks to go or this, that, and, and it's, yeah. The reason behind it, the the lease is coming to an end next year in 2024. And uh, I'm I'm not prepared to renegotiate another lease, even if it was a short-term lease. I'm 63 years old and I'm starting to feel it, starting to get a little bit tired at the end of every day because I'm the kind of chef that's actually in my restaurant every day, unlike some well-known chefs (laughs) who will remain nameless. So I, I, I really enjoy it. And there are mornings where I'm thinking, oof, I'm a bit tired. I, I'm not enjoying today so much. And then my daughter, I've asked my daughter and son-in-law if they wanted to take it over and they didn't want to. They have their own restaurant in Notting Hill and they're very happy there, which is wonderful. So I'm thinking, is time right now? And yes, it is. Time is right now to, to call it a day. And not many people get the chance to quit on their own terms. So I'm quitting on my own terms whilst I'm up there and doing well. And uh, it just feels right. The moment feels right. I'm not going to retire. I've still got lots to do. But uh, Luke Avrosh will be with no fixed abode, as it were. (laughs) (laughs) And obviously, it's such a mainstay in the world of London's food. And it's been going since 1967. I mean, how do you think food has evolved in London in that period? I mean, it's gone mm. through a huge amount of change. Incredible amount of change. I mean, I just recalled there the, you know, a few anecdotes of my childhood. But yeah, you can imagine my father when 
He first arrived here in uh, 1959. The food scene was was quite different to what it is now. And uh, rationing had just finished, more or less, uh, when he arrived. So, yeah, it's certainly in- incredible, absolutely incredible. And not just restaurants, uh, food scene, but but also ingredients as well, how that's changed. I mean, back in the you know, 50s, 60s, even 70s, the, the quality of vegetable was seen as size so, you know, leeks would be a yard long and about five, six inches in circumference, but they were woody and tasted awful, but they looked big <laughs> and great. Same with all the, all the other vegetables. Uh, you know, but, so, you know, slowly but surely everything has got better and, and evolved. So, and now, you know, I mean, I take an example, cheese, for example. I mean, cheese back in the 50s, 60s, yeah, there were a, a few good cheese out, yeah. You had a couple of very good Stiltons and a bit of cheddar. But now, now it's incredible, absolutely wonderful. The the cheese produced in the UK is, you know, rubs shoulders with any any French cheese. Uh, and I think that's that's amazing. And what does 2024 and after that hold for you? Oh, wow. So I have kept the name Le Gavroche. And I will be keeping the business running for however long I, I you know, want it to run. I've had offers to purchase Le Gavroche, the name and, and the business, and, uh, and open up a, a Gavroche left, right and centre. Some very, very silly, silly money. But I, I steadfastly refuse. That would be as if I was selling part of me. And, and I'm not prepared to do that. Uh, Le Gavroche is, is me. It's the Roux family. And it just would not be right if somebody else was running it or owned it. So I own the name and I'm very protective of that. So, uh, you know, Le Gavroche, no fixed abode, as I said. We will be going on the road, on tour, and uh, doing pop-ups and residencies all over the UK and quite possibly all over the world. We've got a couple in the pipeline already. So, um, yeah, just watch this space, as it were. And also, I've I've signed up to uh, be a consultant on uh, the Cunard line. So, um, I'll be doing some work for them on the uh, Queen Mary and on the Queen Anne, which is being launched next year. So Le Gavroche will be doing a little pop-up there. And Michelle, you, you are a mainstay of TV cookery. Mm. What have you learned from doing that? What have you learned about kind of the nation's approach to cooking through working in TV? I mean, media is fantastic, isn't it? It, it, it's, it can inspire people and, and has over the years. It, it's inspired people to cook and it's passed on a lot of knowledge. And I, I, I really enjoy doing television work like that, where I can be an inspiration and, and pass on my knowledge. In fact, it's something that I love doing. I enjoy teaching and I enjoy being a mentor and, and helping the next generation achieve their goals. So I did purposefully at one stage years ago hold back on television because I think at one stage I was on three different channels on the same night and I thought, (laughs) that's not right. That that is not right. I want to be known for Le Gavroche. I want to be known for my cooking and mentoring. I don't want to become a celebrity chef and famous for my TV work which I suppose I am, you know, I'm not knocking it. It sort of brings in a whole new audience and it's, you know, it's good for book sales and et cetera. But I don't want it to be my legacy. I, I, I want to be known for, you know, my work in the kitchen and at Le Gavroche. And what about when you're, you're not in the restaurant? Do you have the time or the inclination to cook at home? 
Yes, I do cook at home when I am at home. And there'll, there'll be a lot more of that next year. Hopefully I'll have some nights, uh, night off. Yeah, I do cook at home and I, and I love cooking. Uh, you know, it, it's something that I love doing. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm still doing it now uh, in the restaurant, because I do enjoy my time in the kitchen. So at home, whether it's uh, just myself and my wife, I'll do the cooking. And uh, especially when I'm in France, in my house in France, then it's friends and family and it's always very, very relaxed and, you know, just great local ingredients, fresh ingredients, no messing around. But yeah, I, I still enjoy rolling my sleeves up and, and yeah, cooking. And, and what for you, Michelle, is comfort food? <gasps> comfort food. Yeah, comfort food. Well, my mum makes a very good shepherd's pie, the French version, of course. What is, what is the French version of Shepherd's Pie? How does it differ from English? Well, it's called an achis parmentier. It sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah. Is it the same ingredients? Or what? Basically the same, <laughs> same ingredients. But uh, yeah, it's a, yeah, an achis parmentier, Shepherd's Pie, I love that. And it was always a treat when mum used to make that at home. As, as kids, we used to enjoy that. But um, I think for me, comfort food is just that. It's comforting. So it's one big dish just brought to the table. You know, at this time of the year, wintertime, slow-cooked meats, pies, game, things with brown sauce, you know, sort of lovingly cold, you know, slow-cooked, rich, unctuous sauces. That's that's the kind of comfort food that I like. It's comforting because it's the comfort comes from within. It fills your belly with joy and, and you know, and you feel content and you want to lie down on the sofa afterwards. And do you have a sweet tooth? Not that much, actually. No, no. I mean, I, I did a pastry apprenticeship, so I love uh, love desserts. But no, not not a sweet tooth at all. I don't drink sweet fizzy drinks or anything like that. I've never liked them, and I really don't like I don't like sweets or, or sweet confectionery. But I love chocolate. But it has to be good chocolate. And when you're out and about, when you're not at Le Gavroche, what are the restaurants that you've that you find yourself going to again and again? My daughters. <laughs> of what is the name of your daughter? You, should, you must mention the yeah, name. Yeah, it's called Caractère, character, because she's got lots of it. And, and so does my son-in-law. And so does my grandson. I don't know where they get it from. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it's in Notting Hill, which is a lovely spot. So that's, that's a, an unashamed plug for them. But when I go out, I tend not to go out to French restaurants because that's what I cook on a daily basis. So, no, I, I love love all kinds of cuisine. I'm a huge fan of, of Japanese cuisine. There's a particular place in White City the, at the Rotonda, which is mind-blowingly good, a very, very small restaurant called um, Endo, Endo at the Rotonda. And it's uh, just an 11-seat counter, and it's, it's mind-blowingly good. But, yeah, I, I, I like all kinds of cuisine. And, Michelle, we like to finish by asking our guests what their desert island meal is. But I think what we really mean by that is what is your ultimate meal? <laughs> My ultimate desert island death row. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, you have to catch the fish yourself. That's, that's the key. Well, I'm a, I'm a keen fisherman, so if you give me a fishing rod and a bit of line, I'm sure I could catch something. Um, <laughs> gosh, uh, yeah. yeah my, my stock answer for this, and, and uh, you know, uh, it's one that I've always... This is a question that often comes up. So, yeah, my stock answer for this is a roast lobster. But I'm very particular, as you can imagine. It's a roast lobster, but absolutely swimming in garlic butter. And this would be a kind of a, an homage to my dad. So when you think you've got enough garlic butter on it, just add some more. Uh, so loads and loads of garlic butter. And served with chips, but they have to be cooked in duck fat. And 
not French fries, not pommes frites. I want big fat chips and sprinkled with molden sea salt. So I know exactly what I want. And uh, on the side, a big sauce boat of Bernays, good Bernays sauce to dip my chips in and wash down with vintage champagne. Would you have pudding? If I were to have pudding, I would go for a, and I'm going to go for a, a, a good old British pudding here, a treacle sponge pudding. And it would be a Gary Rhodes recipe. Gary Rhodes was a dear friend, left us far too young. He's a dear friend and an absolutely amazing, amazing cook, chef. And he revitalized as well uh, British dishes and British cuisine. And it doesn't get enough credit for what he did. He was an amazing chef. And his recipe of treacle sponge is sensational. So I would go for that. Sounds delicious. Well, Michelle, thank you very much for joining us. And Michelle's new recipe book, Michelle Rue at Home, is available now. And Michelle will also be talking at Destinations, the holiday and travel show, from the 1st to the 4th of February at Olympia, London. Thank you.